and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. Um, Today we have a good story for you. Um, It's entitled Death Came Late, and it's written and read by me, David Chamberlain. Thank you. It's a little known fact that death has poor eyesight. Since the dawn of man, he's been squinting and craning his neck and bringing things up close to his preternatural eyes. The poor guy. For a few hundred thousand years, he had to wander around seeing blurry shapes and fuzzy faces. This made the work of death rather difficult. It's hard to suck the life out of someone when you aren't entirely sure they're the right person. So if it seems like the wrong people keep dying, it's because, well, in actuality, they are the wrong people. Sometimes death just can't make sense out of who's who. A young man might die instead of an old one, or a child might die instead of its parent. It's a mess. But Death has tried his damnedest to rectify what he knows to be a pretty serious problem. In the late 18th century, after dispatching more than 75 billion souls to the afterlife, his first real opportunity came at improving his eyesight. Death came to an optometrist shop in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and found himself a pair of bifocals. Thanks, Ben Franklin. Although not entirely curative, his eyesight improved enough to grant him some accuracy in his trade. His mistakes and mishaps were now fewer and farther between. And as medical science improved, so did his eyesight. By 1960, he was wearing thick, horn-rimmed glasses that magnified his abyssal eyes to look like two overripe plums. And in January of 2010, Death finally decided to repair his eyes for good and went in for LASIK surgery at Dr. Sperry's offices out of Charlotte, North Carolina. When he recovered from the surgery, he found that his vision was, more or less, miraculously transfigured. Details were crisp, faces were distinct, horizons were visible, and sunrises were beautiful. Death was changed. He was renewed. But within only a decade, the beneficial effects of his surgery were already beginning to lessen. At night, he would have to search his drunk drawer for some reading glasses. When he was ordering food at a restaurant, he had to bring the menu close to his ancient face. And when he was scouring his book of souls, he found that, for the very first time in a very, very long time, the names of the billions of people looked like nothing more than smudges and squiggles. This was a problem. But death was prideful, and he was going to ride his LASIK surgery all the way to the ground if he had to. He wasn't going to put on glasses until God or his host of angels insisted he do so, which, at this rate, was entirely possible. And it just so happened that death was tired, hungry, and half-blind the day that Tim Goodfellow was destined to die. Death had been caught up in a kind of insurrectionist civil war that had sprouted up on the Congolese plains. It was a conflict that had come out of nowhere, something that perhaps keener eyes could have detected before its outbreak, for there was a kind of simmering, a vibration in the underground, an infallible precursor to all violent conflicts. But death was busy. He was always busy, and certain bubblings and whisperings of war in sub-Saharan Africa had escaped his poor vision. Of course, God could have mentioned it to him, but God was not one to lend a helping hand to death. You see, death, although one of God's first creations, was also one of his most hated. After a couple hundred thousand years of humans living and dying, it seemed that God had forgotten why they had to die in the first place. He took offense to every living soul's passing. Did he not understand that death was just doing his job, the job God had assigned him? The Congolese Civil War proved to be yet another sparring match with Alpha and Omega. 
Death caught a quick flight down to the war-torn country and began what would be three months of brutal deliberations with the divine. Wars, especially civil wars, were always a tedious process. And Death, of course, was always inclined to simply take as much life as he could, to wipe the board clean and fast and let the war be done with. But God was not a pushover, and to him every single stinking person was precious. His arm was blown off, Death would say. It'll become infected. He's as good as dead. No, 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 God would shout. I know this boy. He's a tough one. He'll pull through. Don't you touch him. You know all of these boys, sir, Death would say. This is going to be a very long war if you intend to keep everyone alive. Their mediations would continue on in much this same manner. God always pleading for life, death just trying to do his job. And all the while, the heavenly lawyers would watch as their hourly billings grew larger and larger. Death found that God was never an easy person to argue with. He acted like he knew everything. And what was worse, he did know everything, so you couldn't even hold that unattractive trait against him. Death much preferred when God was out on vacation and he was meant to do death deliberations with Michael or Gabriel. Those two perfect angels didn't possess the same paternal love that seemed to completely fill God's heart. And whereas God conducted business like an industrial magnate at the height of the Gilded Age, aggressively and with serious grandiosity, Michael and Gabriel were a little more loosey-goosey, like Silicon Valley CEOs. They'd sit at the marble mediation table with their legs crossed, leaning back in their heavenly thrones. Death could wipe the table with them, run them dry, kill a lot of people. And he did just that when God was on his sabbatical in 1939 to 1945. But God was not on vacation during the Congolese Civil War, and after three months of bickering about who and what and when and how each man, woman, and child should die, death was completely exhausted. He boarded a plane meant for Istanbul and left the war-torn country that now resembled something gray and charred like the ashy remnants of a campfire. From Istanbul, he took a flight to London Heathrow, and from Heathrow to Atlanta, and from Atlanta to his hometown of New Orleans. Death had taken up lodgings in that diverse port town back during a different civil war, a much longer civil war, the American Civil War. He found that the climate, the superstitious attitudes of its people, as well as their celebratory and often welcoming nature towards death, suited his sensibilities. I mean, it was nice for him to see people cheering him on with trumpets and dancing, instead of seeing them screaming in agony and denigrating his name. As he made his long pilgrimage back home, Death looked over his Book of Souls in the middle seat of an Airbus A380. The Book of Souls acted almost as a kind of ancient Google document, something that could be edited by multiple parties, and it was constantly being edited by God himself. And as he poured through the catalog of billions and billions of names, he found that he had to solicit the help of his neighbor to help him read it. His eyesight was almost completely useless in navigating any kind of detailed document. Just read, read me that name right there. Death said to his 14-year-old neighbor from Munich. The young girl took the heavy book in her hands and looked at it like it was something diseased or poisonous. She held it away from her person, straining her forearms to keep the book hovering above her lap. Ich spreche kein English, said the girl, trying to hand the runic-carved book back to Death. Das ist gut, das ist gut, Death said. Lies mir in fact Dyson name dort vor. Death pointed to the squiggle he wished to have read. The young girl was surprised at Death's sudden linguistic adaptation and was now even more uneased. She read the name slowly, overpronouncing it and swallowing its vowels like marshmallows. Team Goodfellow, she said. 
Danke, dear, said Death, taking the book back. Death's first non-victim of the Congolese War was to be a middle-aged custodian out of San Luis Obispo, California. His name was Tim Goodfellow. Death would have just enough time to return to his home in New Orleans, take a shower, grab a change of robes, and head back to the airport. The global nature of Death's work had rendered his profession into something closely resembling a modern-day businessman's. He was constantly sitting in airports, he owned a credit card with far too many sky miles, he was the member of a certain hotel chain's reward program that offered a minimal degree of exclusivity, and he carried a multitude of electronic devices that were at first purchased in the name of organization and efficiency, but were now instruments that only seemed to over-encumber him. And poor death wore the look of someone who was perpetually caught in the wrong time zone. God could appear anywhere and everywhere at any time, but death was stuck with 767 wide bodies and shrieking babies. But he wasn't one to complain. It was better than hiring a carriage or riding a mule or what he had done for hundreds of thousands of years, walking. Air travel suited death fine, especially when he had the opportunity to bring the whole plane down mid-flight. It brought him a kind of satisfaction. It meant he could kill 200 birds with one stone, so to speak. But there wasn't a plane crash in his schedule for the next few weeks. Right now, he had to go see about a Californian custodian. The climate was fair in California when death arrived. The air was less humid than home, but still filled with that kind of oceanic presence. The wind whispered, hinted at some large body of water that laid nearby. He had traded the Gulf of Mexico for the Atlantic. Death got into an Uber and looked over his itinerary as he made his way towards the rec center, at which Tim Goodfellow was employed. Tim was to die by a severe stroke. A blood clot had lodged itself somewhere in the gray wrinkles of his brain. It would be a quick death. The lights would go out and the place would be vacant before he even hit the ground. One moment he'd be mopping, the next he'd be on a tour of Heaven's Gardens. The clot, both God and death agreed, was the result of too much drinking, smoking, and bigotry towards Mexicans. That's right. Karma does have her role in ending lives, but God and Death are wary and perhaps frightened by her eastern mystic power and her feminine charms, so she is only consulted under the most complex or dire of circumstances. It was decided, amongst God, Death, and Karma, that Tim Goodfellow's bigotry was not so pronounced to necessitate a painful death, but was enough, God agreed, to grant him an untimely one. So, at age 46, Tim Goodfellow was going to be cut off. Death arrived at the rec center right on schedule. The sky was darkening, and that purply magical period of night was in the air. The rec center's windows were beginning to glow a benign pale yellow, the color of Celtic skin and fresh milk. The rec center itself was a building which featured all of the more common components of publicly funded architecture. Simple, utilitarian forms, bricks, glass, and little else. Death entered the rec center and immediately encountered the wavering, untrained sounds of a community Shakespeare play. They were putting on Cymbeline, of all things. Not Death's favorite of Bill's work. Death liked Titus Andronicus for all of its death and destruction. He always enjoyed entertainment whose narrative was largely concerned with him, even if he was portrayed in a bad light. And when Death took Bill Shakespeare to the other side, he did what he did with all of his favorite artists and geniuses. He asked them a bunch of stupid questions and said a bunch of stupid things. And when he told Bill that his favorite play of his was Titus Andronicus, Bill laughed. Out of all my plays, Bill said, your favorite is Titus Andronicus. You know I wrote that in a kind of, like, drunk stupor? Hamlet is so obviously concerned with you. I mean, hell, it's a love letter to you. Where is your sense? I thought death would be at least a little sensible. Death prolonged Shakespeare's demise. 
Just a little. Not enough to grab the attention of God, but enough to get his point across. When Death came to the rehearsal hall where Cymbeline was being performed, his nose was filled with a kind of rotten egg smell, something he hadn't smelled in a very, very long time. And he remembered that Shakespeare, along with all of the other great geniuses, smelled terrible. It was the only common trait that all of the geniuses possessed, putrid body odor. Mozart, Da Vinci, Euclid, Socrates, Einstein, Lincoln, Van Gogh, Newton, they all smelled bad. Death assumed that whatever additive or chemical God used to create such geniuses must have emitted a bad smell upon contact with all of the other necessary human ingredients. Death moved away from the Shakespeare troupe and came down a dark corridor that was filled with the squeaky sounds of basketball shoes against hardwood. Then he came to a long hallway that was filled with small rooms to be used in any manner of enterprises, arts and crafts, boy scout meetings, AA groups, you name it, but they were all entirely dark and empty. Death stood in the empty hallway and listened to the sounds of laughter and artistic enjoyment, as well as the sounds of physical exertion and athletic camaraderie, and began to be filled with an unusual love for mankind. He looked at the photos that hung on the walls around him. There were black and white photos of people he had killed long ago, and newer photos of people he would be killing in a very short amount of time. And suddenly death was inspired to believe that rec centers were perhaps modern America's greatest possession. He thought that rec centers were wonderful because they were always inhabited at that mysterious time of day when many places were closing down and the seedy late-night places had yet to open up. They are utilized during that perfect purpley time of day. He thought that rec centers were like a kind of suburban theme park. There was only one problem with this rec center. It was missing a chain-smoking custodian. Death whipped out his book of souls from underneath his robes and began rifling through the pages. He brought the book up close to his prehistoric eyes. There was no itinerant German girl present to help him. He wandered under one of the fluorescent lights and found Tim Goodfellow's name and realized, to his horror, that he had misread the address of his appointment. In some bizarre turn of events, he had arrived at an entirely different address, but one which just so happened to also house a rec center. It was a cosmic coincidence if there ever was one. Death thought that God must have been involved. This had divine mischief written all over it. But Death didn't have time to think about divine intervention. He was now running very, very late. He called for another Uber, this one operated by a sprightly young woman of kind manners and sharp aspect, someone who would live to the denture-cleaning, diaper-wetting age of 93. And she seemed very confused at the fact that Death would want to leave a rec center, only to arrive at another, less attractive one. And make no mistake, the second rec center was an eyesore, the ugly stepsister of the first. The place was in shambles. Some windows were boarded up with plywood, the stucco facade was cracked and broken, revealing the structural innards of the building, and the roof was missing large patches of shingling like a balding man misses patches of hair. To death, it looked similar to many of the buildings he had become familiar with during God's sabbatical in the early 40s. The inside of the rec center was no different from its exterior. The theme of deterioration continued. The fluorescent lights flickered and buzzed, the walls were faded, and you could tell they were sticky without even touching them. The floor was a kind of checkered linoleum which was peeling at the edges, and there were no happy sounds of Shakespeare or basketball. It was, for all intents and purposes, deserted. Death roamed the halls of the rec center like the spectral apparition he was, combing all of the empty rooms and dusty corridors, and that's when he saw him. Death turned down a long, skinny hallway which was lit by one meager fluorescent tube. At the other end of the hall, he spotted a dark figure. It was round and bulging in curious ways. Small plumes of smoke were rising from his obscured face. 
It was the man who needed to die. It was Tim Goodfellow. But death was too late. His time had passed. If death killed him after his allotted time, there would be tribunals and heavenly investigations, and the Divine Internal Affairs Department would start breathing down his neck. He couldn't follow through with a killing after he missed the time. He knew that, but he was so close. He was right there. Death approached the custodian, who was vacantly mopping the floor, essentially agitating the dirt and dust, not cleaning it up. A half-smoked cigarette was hanging out of his mouth, clinging on to his chapped lips for dear life. Death cleared his throat. Excuse me, Death said. Are you... you wouldn't happen to be Tim Goodfellow. Tim stopped mopping and looked up at Death. Death, even with his fuzzy vision, could see that poor Tim was hideous. He had some kind of proportional defect that was so powerful that not even near blindness could hide it. Yeah, said Tim in a prototypical smoker's voice. Who's asking? He flipped his cigarette into his mouth and sucked in a good puff of poison. Well, no one. No one really. You're not from the... You're not from Parks and Rec or something, are you? Tim asked. No, no. Well, okay, what do you want? Nothing. Not anymore. I value plain speaking here. I don't have time for vagaries. Well, in that case, I should let you know that you were supposed to die exactly 15 minutes and 38 seconds ago. But I was late. So you're saved. Oh, really? That's right. Well, there's no need to worry. You can still do it. Nobody's around. There won't be any witnesses. What are you going to use? A gun? A knife? Tim winked and pretended to mop some more. He was oddly unaffected by this stranger's unusual small talk. He spoke as though he was completely comfortable. He postured as though he were joking with an old friend. It's not... I suppose it's not quite like that. I need to go now. I have other places to be. Other people I need to attend to. Nice to meet you. Goodbye now. Uh-huh. Death turned and began walking back down the long, dark corridor. In all his years, he had never been late. He had mixed things up from time to time, sure, but he had never been late. Never not taken a life when he should have. Suddenly, Tim's voice was calling out from behind him. Death turned to face him. Has anyone ever told you... Has anyone ever told you that you're... You look... You kind of look like... Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Has anyone ever told you that you look like an old oil painting or something? Something... Something fake, almost. Something out of time. Uh, yes. I've gotten that before. But I... I... You make me feel comfortable. You know that? You make me feel like I'm... Like I'm going home. Death noticed that the poor janitor was beginning to cry. Well, you're not going home, Death said. Not yet, anyway. Then Death walked away. He was off to Sri Lanka, and he wasn't going to get the address wrong this time. Thank you. That was Death Came Late. This episode was written, edited, and read by me, David Chamberlain. The music is from Kevin McLeod.